0: You guys can be seated. Okay, so my, my dad is one of the friendliest people that I know. <laughs> he, he bikes, like road bikes, as a hobby, and he literally waves at every single person he passes on the bike path. He's, he's one of those people. And it has always been that way, even when I was growing up. At the grocery store, at the drive through at the counter, at Blockbuster, and one of my dad's favorite questions to ask people was uh, he would lean in, kind of at the end of a conversation. He would say, "Hey, are you a believer?" That's what he would ask these total strangers. And it was never the thing that he like led with in the conversation. It was always kind of at the end of the conversation. And he didn't ask everybody. It was only after kind of chit chatting for a while, you know. And every time he asked that question, the person would say yes. It was it was very amazing to me, and I wondered as a kid, how do you have such an accurate sniffer for other Christians, right? Like how does this how does this work? So I asked him, how do you know? And he said, oh well, you, you can just tell. And I was like, well, that's not very helpful. Like you gotta give me a little bit more than that, you know? And he told me, well, it's it's in the way that these people interact with me, right? It's in their smile, or he would say sometimes I could see it in their eyes that there's a friendliness, like a way of engaging, a presence, a countenance that transcended that transcends people's individual personalities. And what he was, I think, what he was sniffing out in those people was their joy. And in this sermon series, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about joy because we are people who are desperate for joy. We crave it, we need it, it. we were created for it. But as we talked about last week, the way that we as Christians are called to pursue joy is counterintuitive. We pursue joy by losing. Last week, we talked about how we lose our own priorities. And we said last week, our joy, it is based on our circumstances. But our controlling circumstance, the circumstance through which we see all of our other circumstances, is Christ and our union with Christ. As my friend, Terri Lee Cobble, this woman who runs the Bible Recap, okay, as she would say, he is where the joy is. Or another way to say it would be, he is our joy. And this means that we pursue joy by by pursuing Christ, by resting in him and rejoicing in our relationship with him. So when my dad was was asking the person at Blockbuster, hey, are you a believer, right? What he was noticing was that person's union with Christ. He was observing how that controlling circumstance affected how that clerk executed his day-to-day work. That kind of joy the joy that would affect all of our interactions in our day-to-day lives, that is a joy that we have to fight for. That's what we're talking about today, how we would fight for that joy. It's not a joy we have to fight to get, right? We have that joy because of our union with Christ. But we do have to fight to engage with, to remember, to live out of that ultimate circumstance of being connected with Christ. And what we're doing today, and through this sermon series, and in our life here together as a body is equi- we're equipping you to fight for that joy for yourselves and for and with each other. Because if this is, w- <laughs> if this is where engaging with truth stops for you, uh, nothing is ever gonna change in your life, okay? That, that what we're talking about here is, is truth that, that our hope and our prayer is that we're then taking out of this room and that we're taking it out into our lives and practicing it. This is an essential part of that, but what we're doing this this morning, this isn't it. This is an equipping for your daily circumstances. And so we're gonna touch on some very practical truths, I think, and how we would fight for joy in our own lives. And we're gonna talk about rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, that okay, that's a place that we can rejoice is in the advance of the gospel. We're gonna talk about how the gospel advances through suffering, and then what it means to stand strong in the midst of our suffering. So rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, how the gospel advances through suffering, and how we can stand strong in our suffering. pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you desire to speak to us through your word. We're thankful for your spirit, uh, and that through him, the word is living and active. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, not only speak truth to us today, Lord, but that you would change and shape our hearts through your truth. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible, you can open with me to Philippians. That's that's where we are, hanging out for the next several weeks. So we're in Philippians 12 through 18, and then we're gonna do 27 through 30. 12 through 18, 27 through 30. Don't worry, we're gonna come back to the rest of the verses next week, okay? So don't be concerned. <laughs> knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, over to verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, so what we're gonna talk about first is rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. Okay, so just look with me at verse 18. It says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So that word rejoice, right there, that's a flare for us, right? We've talked about how joy is the theme of this book, so we see our key word right there in that verse. So we're gonna hone in there on why Paul is saying that he's rejoicing. And remember, Paul is, is he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And he's answering their concern for him. They're worried about Paul. And he's telling them, hey, you don't have to be worried for me. I'm experiencing joy even here in the midst of my imprisonment. He's informing them of a circumstance, though, that is giving him joy. Because like we talked about, joy is connected to our circumstances. And he's telling them that the circumstance that he is rejoicing in is the fact that the gospel is advancing, that Christ is being proclaimed. And part of what that tells us is that the Christian life isn't about just having more and more knowledge stuffed into our heads. This is about God forming our hearts. It's about God shaping what we love and why we would rejoice. That's what Paul's trying to do here for his friends in this Philippian church. He's saying, hey, I, this is why I'm rejoicing and I want you to be able to rejoice for the same reason. So let your hearts be formed and shaped so that they would come to rejoice in these same things. So that raises the question then, do you rejoice when the gospel is proclaimed? And I don't mean that as a shaming question, but to point out that this could be a place where the Holy Spirit wants to work in your heart, where he wants to shape your heart. That you and I need to be taught more about where and how and why we would rejoice. So what is the last piece of good news that you remember rejoicing over? Like One of my favorite things is finding out that other people are pregnant. I love hearing it proclaimed. When my sister was pregnant and she told me, I cried. My other sister told me she was pregnant, cried. Sister-in-law, cried, always. It just, it's just It's such good news to me. <laughs> I was talking to someone in our congregation a few weeks ago on the phone about their new baby, praying for him, cried. Just get so excited about babies. <laughs> I love hearing that good news proclaimed, and, it, and it's, not a, it's not just about that good news like, for me, right? It's not just when my wife is pregnant, it's anyone being pregnant. Other people's good news becomes good news to me because I believe in the goodness of it, because I've experienced the goodness of it. And in Greek, the word for gospel is another word for good news. So when we're talking about the gospel advancing, Christ being proclaimed, what we're talking about is good news. And for the Romans, this word got used whenever a new emperor would come to the throne because this new emperor was always promising a reign of peace and prosperity, conquering through the power of state, through the sword. But this also meant that there was a new gospel all the time. There was always good news because there were always new emperors. That whenever there was a civil war, whoever won the civil war said, hey, it's good news that I won. But, but what Paul is talking about here is something different. He's saying that there is, there's not all kinds of different good, good newses. There's just one. There's the good news. The good news of, of Christ being king and Christ reigning over and bringing his kingdom. He's saying that he rejoices when that one good news is proclaimed and that's a once and for all good news. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ has triumphed over death through his life, death, and resurrection that he has the victory, that death has been defeated, that peace with God is possible, that we can be restored and redeemed, that captives have been set free, that people who are lost have been found, that people who have been spiritually blind have been given sight. Through Christ being proclaimed, people move from death to life. That's what the scriptures tell us. Have you moved from death to life? That is something that is worth rejoicing over. And it's good news for us, but we also know that it's so good for us, it's also good for other people. And so we can rejoice when that name, when that gospel, when that good news is proclaimed to other people. We can also rejoice whenever it's proclaimed because it's still active. Because that good news is saving people even now. It's It's not good news that grows old or stale. It's always advancing, always. The kingdom of God is always coming. We talked about that a few weeks ago and we talked about the parable of the leaven. Sometimes it may not look like much. Sometimes it may be small or subtle. Maybe even so subtle that it seems invisible. But the kingdom of God is always on the move. And Paul is aware of this fact. The awareness of this promise shapes how he sees his world and how he sees his circumstances. That's what he's telling the Philippians about in verses 12 through 17. He's saying, hey, this is where I am seeing the gospel advancing. He, he's tuned into it and he wants them to tune into it because he wants us, he wants the Philippians and he wants us to start seeing our world through that lens. Right? See, pa- Paul's a church planter right? He was a man who was on the move. He was taking these missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean world, planting on these churches, and now he is holed up in one spot. He's under house arrest when he's writing this letter. One house, just chilling all day, quarantined. And what he says is even in that circumstance, the gospel is being proclaimed. And it's not just Paul proclaiming it, that because of his imprisonment, other people have grown more bold in proclaiming the gospel. And they're advancing the kingdom through their boldness. And then he says in verses 15 through through 18, there are even people doing this through really bad motives, which is just like a weird thing to think about, right? Like why would you, how how could you afflict somebody else by preaching the gospel? I think the idea here is that uh, there were probably people who were jealous when Paul came to Rome. That there's this guy who is known as an apostle who's, who's powerful in his preaching, and they're upset that the spotlight is being taken off of them and is being put on somebody else. So they're still preaching the same gospel, but they're doing it in a way that draws t- attention to them. And Paul says, you know what? Whether they're preaching it because they're jealous or out of envy, what matters to me most of all is that Christ is proclaimed. And, and when Christ is proclaimed, it always happens Paul highlights this for us. It, it's always proclaimed to individual people. We see that in verses 13 and 14. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, all of these crack troops that were tasked with, with guarding the emperor. Paul says that throughout all of their ranks, the gospel is being proclaimed person to person, which just makes you think about Paul day to day being under house arrest is probably chained to a Roman guard. So as he's chained to this guy all day, you got to talk about something, right? What's Paul talking about? He's just talking about Jesus, classic Paul. <laughs> and he's and as he's telling this person that he's chained to all about Jesus, the news of that is spreading to all of these other guards. Yet the gospel is always advancing, and it's always advancing in the hearts of individual men and women. Okay, so what does that mean for us as we are fighting for joy? Can I just tell you, I. I get so beat down by our world. Just just the news, I have to like really watch how and how much of it I take in on any given day because I can get so overwhelmed with just how crazy it feels to live in our world. I can become so disoriented and discouraged. And rather, can he, does anyone else relate to that? Okay, great, glad to see you're all awake this morning. <laughs> And rather than staying there in that place of discouragement, this passage invites us to tune in to a different reality, and it's a reality that does not appear on the headlines of our newspapers. It's the reality that the kingdom is advancing. And that doesn't make sad things less sad or tragic things less tragic, but this passage is a dare for us to be on the lookout for where the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And often that takes our focus off of all of these huge things that we can't control and it brings our focus back to what's happening right around us. Like one of my favorite parts of being involved in a discipleship group is just hearing from my friends week in and week out what Jesus is doing in their lives. And what that tells me is that the gospel is advancing. I get to hear it in their stories as they share. The gospel is advancing in their own hearts. Sometimes when we leave group, Caroline and I, we, we love talking about and reflecting on where we have seen Jesus at work in our group when group is done. That takes a lot more effort, doesn't it? It's much easier to leave group and be critical. To be critical of our friends or of our families. But fighting for joy means asking the Holy Spirit to show us where the gospel is moving forward in, in, our, in our own hearts, in the, in the hearts and the lives of the people around us and in the world around us. I and mean, when we see those things, we're called to, to praise God for those things, to thank God for those things, to, to praise him for those things. And we also get to take part in this joy in the proclaiming. Right? We talked about how the imperial guard has heard the gospel because Paul is the one proclaiming it. So he's rejoicing in this thing that he's had a part, of, he's had a part in. Our, our desire is that our church, that this church, this thing that we're a part of together, that it would grow, right? And we want it to grow, not because we need more people sitting in the rows. That is not the point, right? But because what Jesus has done for us is so good, we want other people to experience Jesus doing those things for them. Because it's good news that we would want to see people added to the kingdom, and as we, as we speak the name of Jesus with boldness, as we talk about this good news that has been good news for us, we get to participate in the advance of the gospel. And that is something that, that is an invitation then into joy. That we would find Christ precious and worth proclaiming because he has found us precious. And that starts with us learning to rejoice in the gospel for ourselves. It's a call to us that we would feed on, that we would remind ourselves of the goodness of God. That's why we have that daily office that we handed out last week, or that maybe you've been doing on Instagram or in your email, the little booklet to follow along with Philippians. It's a very practical way, even if it's just five minutes a day, for you to remind yourself of the goodness of the gospel. It's it's an opportunity. We're creating an opportunity to rejoice. So the call there to be in God's word or be in prayer is not a call for you to walk through some mechanical wi- rhythm, but for you to set up a daily space in your life where you would be making room for, fighting for the joy that comes of, of and from remembering the gospel. Okay, so the gospel is always advancing. What this passage also tells us is that the gospel advances through suffering. So look at Verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel. He says it like that, really has served, because he's reminding them that it may not seem that way. right? You, you might not think that what has been happening to me would advance the gospel, but it is. So what is Paul talking about? Well, probably he's talking about the fact that he's imprisoned. He's saying that has actually served to advance the gospel. Probably he's also talking about these, all of this interpersonal conflict that he's experiencing with these other people who are jealous and envious. And you guys know what it's like to be in relationships, relationships like that? It's toxic. And Paul is saying, hey, even in that, I can, I can rejoice, right? Because the gospel is going forth. Those are some of the circumstances. But we also know from the scriptures that Paul has experienced a lot of stuff, Right? He gives this list in 2 Corinthians 11, and I'm gonna gonna read it to you. This is Paul kind of recounting for this church some of the things that have happened in his life. It says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So that's 39 lashes, five times, it's a lot of lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And in all those things, Paul is constantly reminding the churches that he's writing to, in all of those things, the gospel is advancing. And I don't, let me be clear, I'm not giving you that list as, like a, as a pain-shaming device, right? This is not about, well, look at all, Paul suffered, so you shouldn't complain. That is not the point of that, okay? It's not to say, oh, you should get out there and try to suffer a little bit more so you can measure up to Paul. That is not the point. It's just to say that Paul is always cluing us into the reality that through suffering, the gospel advances and he's a man who knows what that means, who's experienced the hurt and the pain of that, the push and the pull of that. That's a perspective shift, right? To think that God is always using our suffering to advance the gospel. We've gotta ask, how does that actually help Paul in bearing up under the suffering? Why is it encouraging to him to know that the gospel advances through his suffering? That encourages Paul because to him the gospel is such good news. Paul rejoices at the gospel going out because the gospel is so good he can even rejoice when it's proclaimed in and through his own suffering. He's not saying that suffering isn't isn't bad. He's not trying to minimize it. You just see the above list, right? But it's because the good news is so good that he can rejoice even in those circumstances. And again, we're going to keep pounding this over and over and over again. This is not a good news that is somehow separate from Jesus. Paul treasures this good news because he treasures Christ. In Philippians 3.8, which we'll get to in a few weeks, he says it like this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in verses 10 and 11, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul has this great desire for intimacy and deeper intimacy with Jesus. And what Paul is telling us is there is a witness with Jesus that we only experience in our suffering. That intimacy with our Lord is forged in the crucible of our suffering. And there's there's a loneliness in our pain, there's a hurt there that even as we share it with other people that we can only know in our own hearts. That's what Proverbs 14:10 says, "And it's there in that place that Christ is with us, in the place that, uh, the place of our pain that no one else can touch or understand. And it's there in that place that we are also with Him. Because all of our pain is a pointer. It's a microcosm, a glimpse of the pain that Christ experienced as he suffered for us. And we're not just talking about the physical pain of the cross, although that's a part of it. But the existential pain of being separated from the Father, of submitting his will to the will of the Father, the pain that made him sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, that when we're in pain, we're actually brought into fellowship with his pain. And in that fellowship, there's intimacy. As we're there with our Jesus, there's actually joy there because we're there with with him. And in that place of togetherness with Jesus, he shapes us. He makes us more like him. I was trying to find or think about some inspirational church figure to share as an example for this. What kept coming to mind for me was my great-grandmother's. So the last time I was home, we got to watch these home videos, and my, great, my great-grandmas were in these videos. I, I kinda barely remember them, but it was, it was really moving to me to see them on video. And it was when my parents were bringing home one of my siblings from the hospital, and they stopped by my great grandma's houses, and they were only just a few houses apart. They lived on the same street. And there were these hunched over, right, like white hair, shaky hands, shaky voices. And these crumpled up ladies, as they were holding a new baby, were just radiating the joy of Jesus. And the more I know about their stories and the more I know about what it's like just to be a person in the world, I have such reverence for these women who were praising and worshiping Christ all the way to their graves. They knew Jesus because they had had fellowship with him in their suffering. And that's what I wanna be like when I'm old and bent over not crushed by the world, but, but radiating the strength and the joy that comes from delighting in Jesus. And for this to happen, the gospel has to advance in us during our suffering. It has to be proclaimed to us. It has to be proclaimed over us. Sometimes we have to proclaim it to ourselves. Sometimes we need other people to do that. But as we do that, as we experience fellowship with Jesus in that place, the gospel advances in us and it changes us. It changes our priorities. It reshapes what we find important. God loosens the grip that those other things have on us. So, practically, as we fight for joy, the question is will you come to Jesus in your suffering and pain? Will you allow yourself to experience the fellowship that He has promised is is possible for you there? Will you come to him in prayer, praising him and laying out your requests before him? Will you come to him in his word and let him comfort you and teach you and shape your heart and your mind? Will you work with him as he works to advance the gospel in your own heart, even in the midst of what you're going through? And as he meets with us and shapes us, as we experience the joy of fellowship with us, what we find is the freedom to proclaim him regardless of what our other circumstances are because we're confident in our ultimate circumstance of being connected with Christ even in the midst of our pain. See, as Paul was explaining to these men that he was chained to uh, about his relationship with Jesus, he he was showing them the reality of the gospel. He was showing them what it looked like for God incarnate to come down and suffer and defeat death. God was working in Paul, but he was also working through Paul for the sake of others. And these Roman guards were being confronted by strength and joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of suffering that imaged Christ for them. And our suffering, it's true for our suffering, that it displays the power of Jesus, which is so countercultural to the power that we see in this world. The power that our world knows is a power that abuses, it's a power that hoards, it's a power that threatens and manipulates. Like, earlier this week I was driving out to get my second dose, which I'm very excited about, and on my way out, I think it was to Ashland City, I passed this billboard at a gas station, and it was of a man holding a shotgun, and, and, and the, the majority of the billboard was just taken up by the barrels of the shotgun. And what it said was, this is my vaccine passport and I thought, that is so interesting. That, that is the way that our world thinks about power. It's overwhelming force that is out to get my agenda. But as we suffer, we demonstrate a different kind of power. It's a power that, that allows us to bear up under our suffering, and it's a power that shames the power of this world, just like Jesus' death shamed the powers of this world. It's not just that we have a good attitude, but it's that we find joy and purpose in our suffering even while admitting that what we're experiencing is hard. So we gotta talk about how would we stand strong in the midst of that suffering then? As we see the gospel advance, as we find our joy in that, and as we know that it comes even in our suffering, how then would we bear up under it? How would we be strong in it? Because Paul is very concerned about that. He talks about it in verses 27 through 30. Paul tells the Philippians, he encourages them toward faithfulness even in the midst of their suffering. And we just gotta admit, okay, to us as 21st century people, even as 21st century Christians, this grates against us because we live in a dashboard confessional world, right? As many of you may or may not remember, I am, I was, am, I am a huge fan of emo music. That's like what I was into in high school, right? And I will tell you, I got into the secular music game a little bit late, so my exposure may not be as deep as yours, okay, but I still loved it a lot. Like Jimmy Eat World, you know, All-American Rejects, Fall Out Boy, I was in it. And it's so angsty, right, the sound of it is so emotional, I just loved it, Love it. And it, it's like, just come and drown yourself in your feelings. It, and it perfectly summarizes my response to suffering which is to go put on my swim trunks and spend all day paddling in the pool of my emotions. And that's what it means to be authentic. Now, maybe you're not into emo music, that is okay, although I have some bands I could recommend if you're interested. (laughs) Even if it doesn't have that whiny punk sound, okay, everything around us is preaching to us that kind of self-indulgent pity pool party and engaging in our emotions is that way of actualizing ourselves and the truth is i love my my pity pool party And and what what I'm not saying is that we should go back to being the kind of people who like go off and fight these wars and then come home and like never talk about it and die with all of our stories in our grave and just like push our emotions down all the time. That's not what we're saying, right? This is not a pendulum of like, oh, first we suppressed all our emotions, now we only think about our emotions, we just gotta find this place in the middle. It's not a balance of suppressing and then wallowing them. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a different paradigm and it's the paradigm of being faithful even in the midst of our suffering. And what Paul is saying is that you and I need to have courage pressed into us so we can bear up under suffering. See, I often insist on being comforted when I'm in pain. And I live as if until all of my sadness or anger or fear leaves me and is replaced with joy, I can't do anything, and that is being authentic. That's not what Paul is talking about here, okay? He grounds us in a different reality. He actually uses very military language. He uses words like advance, contend. He talks about enemies. Lots of martial metaphors here, which was appropriate for the Philippians because they were a colony where ex-Roman soldiers had been settled. And it, these kind, of, kind of military metaphors are used all throughout scripture. And what Paul is reminding the Philippians about is he's saying, hey, you are in a war, people. And it's true for us, too. We're in a spiritual battle. And this changes things. Because when we forget that, our spiritual lives become all about us, about Jesus giving me my best life now on my terms. It becomes all about my self-indulgent exercises in building a better me. But here, the call is for us to participate in something that's much grander, much bigger than ourselves, something that's of infinite worth. And because of that, Paul says, you need to have courage pressed into you. He says it's possible that we could be strong in suffering, that we could bear up under it. And that doesn't mean denying it. It doesn't mean pretending that it's not there. But it does mean being strong and keeping your wits about you rather than spending all of your time at the self-pity pool party. Grieving and feeling sad, acknowledging fear, they're all a part of us standing strong. They don't undermine strength at all but it's bringing those things to Jesus. That's where we find our strength through our fellowship with him. What makes us weak is when we give those emotions the, the keys to our life and crawl, o- crawl on over into the passenger seat. Okay, one practical point of application here. Okay? You can't do that alone. That's, a, that's an impossible thing to do alone, is to bear up under suffering. We need the body of Christ to be able to do that. Paul acknowledges that in these verses, right? He says this in verse 27. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, for the f- faith of the gospel. He's encouraging them in unity because he knows that they're gonna need each other for this journey, okay? Just a quick diversion into Roman military tactics. This is stuff I kinda geek out on, but you need cohesion to be successful in battle. That is why the Romans were able to conquer the Mediterranean world, right? Is because of the co- cohesion that they display in battle. So when the Romans would encounter an enemy, like a, like, a, uh, like a barbaric Germanic tribe, for example, the way that their enemies would often fight is it would just, someone would just yell charge and everybody in the army would just rush at the other army. And the only tactic was charge or retreat. But for the, for the Romans' enemies, retreat was never announced. It was just something that happened when people started to decide that they were tired of the fight and they just turned tail and left. There's no strategy there. It's either we're charging or I'm retreating. And the Romans took a totally different approach to battle. They knew that their well-being, that the success of their unit and the success then of themselves hinged on them being united and moving forward with one purpose and with one mind. They knew that as they were fighting the enemy, they were fighting for each other and that as they were fighting for each other, that was a way of fighting against this enemy that was pressing in on them. They knew that their well-being was tied up with the success of the bigger picture. They all rose or fell together. And so it was important to them that they were strengthening each other even as they moved forward. That's what Paul is calling us to here. He's calling us to the kind of unity that is required for a successful military endeavor. Which means that our fight to love each other, it matters. That we need to be strengthened by each other for this journey of joy, for the adventure of participating in the advance of the gospel. We need each other for that. So practically, that means identifying with the people who are sitting right around you. It means saying that you're gonna be a part of this body of believers. You can't be strengthened if church is just a thing that you do on Sunday. There's a call here for us to knit our lives together. That you would knit your life in with the people who are right around you. And that, that is, that's a choice, and that's a hard choice, because there is always a trade-off. Every time that you make the choice to connect with someone else who is part of this body with you, that's part of the body of Christ with you, every time you choose to do that, you were saying no to something else. It's just true. To choose these people is to, to not choose someone or something else. But it's so critical that we make those choices because it's only through relationship that we're able to press courage and the, and the truth of what we believe into each other. What we do here on Sunday, what you do in your small group, that's a, that's a part of it, but these places are springboards for relationships. And once you're in relationship, it means asking for and giving encouragement. Right? When I am swimming in the pity pool party of my own emotions, what I sometimes want is I just want you to stay away. right? I just want you to listen. I wanna be able to tell you all about what's happening in my pity pool party, but I don't want you to say anything about it. Now, okay, obviously sometimes people say really unhelpful things, that's true, okay? And sometimes I do just need to be listened to, and that's also true. But I don't always and only need to be listened to. Sometimes I need somebody else to encourage me and to tell me what's true because I am forgetting. And so the invitation here is you could actually, now think about this, you could actually be talking to someone in this room, telling you about what's happening in your life, and then you could say, hey, I need to be encouraged. Can you tell me what's true? Like, I'm not, you could actually say just those words. Could you tell me what's true? Or you could say, will you pray for me? And not like, will you pray for me sometime in the distant future when you're home and by yourself, but like, will you pray for me right now? (laughs) Like, before we leave coffee, I just need you to pray for me. It's asking for the encouragement that we need. It's giving other people the permission to speak that. And sometimes it's being the person on the other side of that conversation and saying, hey, can I encourage you? Just asking. Hey, can I pray for you right now? Hey, what do you what do you feel like you need from the Lord? Because I want to ask the Lord for that for you right now. That our relationships aren't, we've talked about this before, but sometimes it can feel like, yeah, we're all doing this this thing of following Jesus together, but we never actually talk about it, right? Like we're kind of, we know that each other are Christians, we see each other at church, like we do small group together, but we never actually speak the name of Jesus to each other? Come on, I need more than that. We need more than that from each other. (laughs) We need to be reminded of what's true. We need that kind of encouragement pressed into us. So that's the invitation of this passage. that uh, That as we are fighting for joy in our lives, that one of the things that we lose is the idea of our own suffering being meaningless. That, that we can take joy in the fact that the gospel advances in our own hearts, even in the places of our suffering, to us and to, uh, to other people, to the people around us. And that this passage also gives us the courage that we need to press courage into each other and to receive courage from each other as we fight for our joy and for the joy of the people around us, knowing that with Jesus is where our joy is. Pray with me. Father, uh, we we desire to be a community that is full of joy, uh, and that is full of joy uh, because of our relationship with you, because of our union with you. And we just confess, Father, that our ability to do that ourselves is so small. Uh, And so we're thankful. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who ministers to us, We thank you for the fellowship that we have with you in our suffering, and we thank you for this body of believers. Lord, would you knit our lives closer together uh, as we press courage into each other? Amen.